If you've got your Bible, you can turn with me to the book of Isaiah, or Isaiah, as our British friends say it. Uh, But we won't be getting there for a little while. Uh, I mentioned to you that we are taking a break from our series in 1 Kings. She's very upset about it. Uh, We're taking a break from our series in 1 Kings and are going to be spending the next three or four weeks walking through this season of Advent together. Uh, While our team was over in Scotland last week, I was talking to Pete, who's one of the pastors that we partner with over there, and he asked sort of what a typical year of teaching would look like here in the college and career ministry. And so I kind of explained to him our, our broad approach, which is that normally uh, we pick a book or a portion of the Bible that we spend about a year in. And so 2016, it was the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, 2017, it was Second Corinthians. Uh, but then within that year, we take a couple different breaks and we'll teach on a couple different sort of shorter topics of two or three weeks. And then within those breaks, we also spend a week doing Advent and we, or not a week, uh, we spend four weeks doing Advent and about four weeks doing Lent. And so I explained all this to Pete and his response was, right, so you guys are like Catholic or something then. And my response was, no, we are very not Catholic as, as any real Catholic would be able to tell. Uh, But the fact that we're doing Advent and the fact that we do things like Lent, uh, I realize it's something we should probably spend some time talking about and explaining. So for the first 15 minutes or so of our time together, I just want to explain why we're doing this as a ministry, why we're walking through this season. Because all of us are coming from different backgrounds. Uh, You might have come from a background similar to mine, which was Anglican Episcopal, where we did things like Lent and Advent. We were kind of like diet Catholics. Um, where you have all of, the, all of the liturgy of the Catholic Church without the Pope, basically. Um, the Pope is like the sugar that's taken out of Diet Coke and replaced with aspartame in the Anglican Church. That's a brilliant analogy that I'll develop further after this is over. Uh, or maybe you did actually grow up Roman Catholic and you did things like Advent and Lent. And so when you hear that we're doing Advent as a ministry, you're like, ah, oh, that makes me feel a little bit weird. Maybe it was sort of a dead tradition for you growing up that you just did and you never understood why or what it was about. And so it's worthwhile to spend some time just talking around this and explaining why I think that this is not a necessary thing for us to do, but might be a beneficial thing for us to do. So from the beginning pages of Scripture, what we kind of see is that the people of God are a people that are marked and shaped and formed by time. And so you can look in the book of Genesis, and after God creates the moon and the stars and the sun, he says, these will be for the marking of seasons and years and days. There's something about creation that exists to help us as another part of creation mark the passing of time well. And then you can get to what what I call the flyover books in the Bible, which are not Exodus, but Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which is the part that people just skip over when they try and read the Bible through a year. Um, And you see, amongst all these laws that God gives the people of Israel, he also kind of gives them a calendar. Now, it's not a full-on calendar. You couldn't totally reconstruct it from the laws given. But he gives them a Sabbath day that they're to keep. He gives them sort of this seven-day week that they're to follow. He gives them festivals that they're supposed to celebrate. He gives them holy days that they're supposed to mark. He gives them feast days which I would love to bring back in religious life. I would love for us to just have appointed feast days where we all go to Golden Corral and fellowship. (laughs) But they have this sort of communal 
calendar, this passing of time that they're supposed to mark in specific ways. Now, some of them you might be familiar with. You've got things like Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Many Jewish people still celebrate that to this day. You have things like Pentecost, which was a thing before the Holy Spirit descended as well. This was a Jewish holiday that's given to the people of Israel in the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You have something like the year of Jubilee, which is this every seven-year year where people's debts are absolved, where people who are in slavery are set free. So God gives his people these yearly and every so often, every couple yearly rhythms that are meant to shape them and form them to be more fully in his image. You see this in like the book of Exodus, for example. In chapter 12, when God gives the Passover, he says, you're going to do this for forever. You, you are going to mark this day every year for as long as you are a people. And when your children ask you, why are we eating this gross bread? Uh, and why are we eating this roasted lamb? you're going to respond that we do this because of what I'm about to do in delivering you from Egypt. So there's this day, there's this feast that exists so that all future generations of God's people can remember what God has done. We're a people that are shaped, or the people of God are people that are meant to be shaped by time and to mark it in such a way that it continues to form us and shape us. And it's interesting because we're also, just as human beings formed by consistent rhythms and patterns. Nobody, by and large, changes in one night. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever saw that movie School of Rock that came out a long time ago. People tell me I look like Jack Black. I'm wildly offended by that. (laughs) Um, But there's this line in that movie where he's like, one great rock concert can change the world. That's a lie. That's not true. (laughs) By and large. And really, one single event, one single church service, one single conference, none of that ever really changes people deeply. We're changed by what Eugene Peterson calls long obedience in the same direction. We're changed by day in and day out and year in and year out, these rhythms that shape us and form us into something new. A couple years ago, I guess a couple weeks ago, rather, uh, I was talking to Matt Ryan, and one of the things that he said was, Uh, You know, I've found it easier to repent in my prayer life because there's repentance built into Thursday nights in college and career. But he's been here for six months now. And it didn't get easier from week one to week two. It's been this rhythm that has shaped and molded and formed him. And the early church recognized that we don't change on a dime. We, don't, uh, we are not molded into the image of Christ overnight. That is a long process that takes time to uh, be worked out in the life of a believer in the power of the Spirit. And so they're grappling with this in the early centuries of Christianity. And then one of the other things that they're thinking through are passages like uh, what we find in the book of Revelation, where Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And they're saying, okay, so Jesus is Lord of creation, but it looks like he's also Lord of time. What does it look like for even the way that we mark time to be shaped by the gospel of Jesus. And over the course of centuries, they developed what's called the Christian year, the liturgical calendar, which is sort of this way of taking specific events in Jesus' life, marrying them to specific seasons that we have in a solar year. So that in the passing of the year, we're not just marking the passing of seasons, but we're being reminded of different facets of what Jesus has done for us. 
And so you have Advent, which is the beginning of the Christian year, which moves to Christmas, where we mark the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, uh, the thing that you see all these terribly done nativity scenes commemorating across town. And in the Christian year, Christmas is such a big deal that it takes 12 days to celebrate, not just one, which is where the song got the 12 days of Christmas from. And Christmas moves to Epiphany, which is where Christians mark the first appearing of the Messiah to the Gentiles, when the kings, the magi, the three wise men, came and visited Jesus. It's marked in Epiphany. And then you move from Epiphany to the season of Lent, where we remember the 40 days that Jesus fasted in the wilderness. And traditionally, Christians also fast for 40 days as a way of identifying with Christ's fasting. And then you get to Holy Week, which marks Palm Sunday, where he rides into Jerusalem. Good Friday, where Jesus is crucified. Easter Sunday, where he's raised from the dead. And then you move from Holy Week and Easter to Pentecost, the Feast of the Ascension, where we remember that Jesus didn't just die and rise from the dead, but he ascended into heaven and he poured out the Spirit, and then you're all of a sudden back at Advent again. So the Christian calendar, I don't think, is a requirement for Christians to follow. It's not a demand that should be placed on people. But it's certainly not just an empty tradition. It's a way for us to see all of time as being captured and laid hold of by the inescapable power of the gospel of Jesus. So what then is Advent, this portion of the Christian calendar? Well, it's important to to be really clear. Advent is not Christmas. Christmas is Christmas. Christmas gets its own 12 days. It can butt out of Advent's business which is why I didn't choose these Christmas decorations. Um, now, Advent and Christmas are joined, but they're, they're interested in turning our hearts towards different things, different aspects of God's work throughout history. See, Advent is about waiting, and Christmas is about the answer to our waiting. When I look through the narrative of Scripture, it seems to me that God is really intent on making his people wait longer than they want to for what it is that they want. And so, so let me give you a, an example of that by virtue of the whole Old Testament. Um, so Genesis 1, Genesis 2, the world is created good. By the end of Genesis 2, the world is broken by sin and death has entered the world. Genesis 3, God makes a promise, uh, which we call the Proto-Evangelion, the first telling of the gospel, that he's going to answer the problem of sin, that somebody's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then you have a whole Old Testament where that doesn't happen. And so you go from Adam to Abraham, and from Abraham to Joseph, and from Joseph to Moses. And with Moses, you go out of Egypt, and it passes to Joshua. And from Joshua, it goes to the judges. And from the judges, it goes to Saul. And from Saul, it goes to David, and David to Solomon. Solomon to the prophets. And God's done a lot of incredible things, but he's never dealt with the problem that's introduced in chapter 2 of the Bible. And throughout the whole of the Old Testament, the people of God are waiting and waiting and waiting, crying out, God, when will you make things right? And God's response is, wait, and keep waiting, and keep waiting. That's what Advent is interested in kind of orienting our hearts around, is the waiting that God expects of his people. It's this reminder that Israel waited for generations before the Messiah came. 
Generations came and went and came and went, and consistently they waited for God to make good on his promise, knowing that he would, but waiting nonetheless. And we're actually, as a church and as the church globally, a whole lot like Israel in the Old Testament. Because what we see is that we have this first coming of Jesus that we celebrate in Christmas, the first coming of the Messiah. And we're now 2,000 years into waiting for the second coming. We live in an area of nuclear tension. We live in an area of uh, virulent racism. We live in an, an era of political division. And we, like Israel, must wait for God to set things right. So we need to learn how to wait well. We need to learn how to wait as a people who have hope. I would venture to say that in our own lives, we need to learn how to wait also. Maybe you find yourself in a season of waiting. Uh, There's a relationship you would really like to see change from friend zone to not that. I was trying to think of a clever way to rhyme, but I figured it would probably go badly. So, um, so you're waiting and trying not to despair in the midst of that. Or maybe you've got a friendship that's fractured, broken. It's not as it ought to be, and you are currently waiting for reconciliation. Maybe you're in a season of doubt or spiritual dryness. God feels distant, and you are waiting, waiting for that newness of life, that rekindled joy. All of us find ourselves waiting. Advent is about learning to wait well. One of the great voices of Advent is the prophet Isaiah. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to the the book of Isaiah, chapter 64. Isaiah is a prophet writing around 700 B.C., so 2,700 years ago-ish. Isaiah lives in the kingdom of Judah. Uh, As we'll see as we work our way through 1 Kings, uh, the nation of Israel is divided and conquered as a result of the sinfulness of their kings. And so the southern kingdom is carried off into captivity. The northern kingdom remains for a while longer where the temple is. And Isaiah is living in that northern kingdom that has not yet been carried off into exile. But Isaiah is that person in your friend group who won't let a good time be a good time because they know something bad is right around the corner. They're the me. He's the me of your friend group. And so Isaiah knows, based on the way that Israel is is living and acting and the things that are going on, that the hammer of judgment is about to fall. There's this rampant idolatry. There's uh, sexual perversion. There's all sorts of sin that is running amok in Israel. And Isaiah is waiting first and foremost for something really bad to happen. He finds himself waiting for God's judgment. But he also knows that God is not in the business of passing judgment without also offering restoration. And so in the book of Isaiah, you see these warnings about the coming judgment uh, that eventually takes place for the northern kingdom, but also these huge passages about the coming salvation, the Messiah, who's going to set things right. Isaiah is waiting for two things. One is for the hammer to fall, and two is for the Lord to raise Israel back up. And so in our text, as he considers the sin of Israel and what it's going to take for Israel to be made right, he says this, chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood, 
The fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From, a, from of old, no one has heard, nor perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. So our text for the evening begins with this plea on the part of Isaiah. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Now, it's important to recognize that a whole lot of Isaiah is prophecy, that he is predicting or sort of casting a vision for what is to come in the judgment and restoration. But this is not prophecy. This is a prayer. This is an appeal on the part of Isaiah. This is his desperate request from or of God in the face of the sin of Israel, in the face of the brokenness that he sees in this country, in the face of what's coming. This is his appeal. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah looks at the brokenness of his world. He looks at the sinfulness of his people. He sees the sinfulness of his own heart. And he makes good on his name. Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. And so Isaiah is looking at all of the the fractured nature of the world around him. And he realizes that if it's ever going to be set right, if, if things are ever to be as they ought to be, it will not be by Israel pulling itself up by its own bootstraps. It will not be by people trying harder to be better. It will not be by people white-knuckling their way towards holiness. Isaiah realizes that if anything is ever to be made right, this is the only hope that the Lord would save, that he would rend the heavens and come down. You know, I was talking with our partners in Scotland, um, and they're getting ready to launch this church uh, in a low-income community in a secular society. And before I'd been over to the U.K., when, when I thought about secularism, I kind of just pictured an entire country full of Richard Dawkins on Twitter. Like, that was just my mental image. It was just a whole bunch of really, really angry atheists just foaming at the mouth to smash down religious people. It's not really what secularism looks like in a society. Secularism looks like indifference, which is almost worse than hatred. Um, I mean, you can talk to anybody who's been on the Scotland team, and one of the things that we continued to discuss as a team both years that we were over there was, it's just astounding to me how little they care. It's not that they're anti-religion. They just don't care about any of it. And so in in talking with um, the Peets, which are the two pastors whose first name is both Pete, um, One of the things that they said is, as we get closer to launching this church, it becomes increasingly apparent to us that if this church is going to be successful in in, in this secular society where people just don't care, the only way that this will be successful is if God does the work. The only way that we will see revival in this community in Glasgow is if God does something in these people's hearts. It won't be by the power of a fog machine and cool lights. It won't be because their band is absolutely incredible. It won't even be because they're super nice, funny guys who are pretty good at public speaking. 
the only way that, that the gospel is going to go forward in that community is if God does it. If he rends the heavens and comes down and sets things right. And this is true not just in Scotland or in Israel during Isaiah's time. It's true in our own lives. It's true in wherever you find yourself waiting right now, whether that's in the midst of a broken relationship, whether that's in the midst of uh, conflict in a friendship, whether that's in the midst of a season of doubt, whether you're in the midst of depression. Your salvation from these situations is not going to come by you just sort of willing your way through it. It will come, in, in the words of Isaiah, when the Lord rends the heavens and comes down and sets things right. Of course, that sounds really like beautiful and wonderful. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Let's put that on like a precious moments card with an angel that has googly eyes. It might make for like a really cute Tumblr post if there ever was such a thing. But Isaiah kind of um, obliterates our cutesy view of what it looks like for God to enter into our lives. And set things right. Because he goes on, he says, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries. Like, I would love to see a, a precious moments card with that, oh, that you would rend the heavens, and then it's just a picture of a forest fire, with like, googly-eyed characters prancing about in the flames. Um... Or, oh, that you would rend the heavens and it's just a mountain collapsing. And you can give that out at the Christian bookstore and people will love it. They'll send it to their friends and family for the holidays. No, like Isaiah's vision of what it looks like for God to step in, into history, into time, into the midst of his people. He doesn't use cutesy images. These are images of fire. These are images of mountains shaking. These are images of things that in a lot of ways would be frightening if you encountered it. And Isaiah knows this well. Earlier on in the book of Isaiah, he sees this vision of the throne room of heaven. He enters into the presence of God, and his response is not googly eyes and precious moments cards. It's abject terror. Like there's fear when Isaiah enters the presence of God. He says, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. Me and all my friends are bad, is his basic response there's something about the heavens being torn apart and the living God entering into, into the midst of his people that is frightening. Maybe you've heard of uh, Blaise Pascal. He was a French uh, mathematician, um, but he was also a pretty well-known Christian philosopher. Um, he's most well-known for this thing called Pascal's Wager, which most people just wildly misunderstand, and I'd love to talk to you about why you and all your friends probably don't understand it after we're done. Um, but one of the things that happened uh, after Blaise Pascal died is that his friends and his family went through his belongings, as is a custom when people die. And they found this piece of parchment sewn inside the coat of his jacket. And it looked like it had been ripped out of another jacket and sewn into the current jacket. And so people kind of came to the they came to the belief that it was probably something he'd kept for a decade or more. And whenever his coat had worn out, he would take this thing and he would sew it into his new coat. And on the parchment, it said this. 1654, Monday, 
the 23rd of November at the Feast of St. Clement. From about half past 10 at night to half an hour after midnight, fire. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the scholars. And so what historians have concluded is that Pascal had this encounter with God, whether it was during prayer or Bible study or, or maybe just kind of thinking about the things of God. He had this encounter with God that so marked him, so shaped him, so formed him that he never wanted to forget it. And so he sewed it into his garment so that any time he was tempted to, to doubt or to, to walk in sin or to turn away from the Lord, he would just go back and he would be reminded of this experience that he had. But in his words, this experience was best described as fire. Like Isaiah describes when he says that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would quake as fire kindles brushwood. And so I I should be clear. I think that we as a ministry, we as Christians desperately need to pray this great prayer of Isaiah that you would rend the heavens and come down. In this ministry, that you would come down in a unique way and do a mighty work amongst us in our lives, in the midst of our, our sinfulness and our brokenness. But, but I want you to understand that that is also a dangerous thing to pray. That's not a prayer to be offered casually or flippantly. Isaiah recognizes that for the living God to dwell among his people, it is going to be a costly thing. Marked by fire. And you see this throughout history. Anytime there's a unique work of revival, I'm talking about real revival, not people barking like dogs and rolling, rolling on the floor, but real revival. It's marked by people repenting of sin. It's marked by people living out costly obedience and going to the nations for the sake of the gospel. It's marked by increasing fervor for the things of God. It looks a whole lot like fire. And so when When we pray this prayer, oh, that you would come down and rend the heavens, you should know that there is a costliness to it. And and the the clearest picture of this is the incarnation of Jesus that we celebrate in Christmas. Like if you have this sort of hippie image of Jesus where he looks like he was a member of the village people or like a folk band from the 70s, and he just sort of floated through Palestine saying nice things that made people feel warm and fuzzy, read more than one verse of any gospel and that should disappear for you. Like Jesus is is the Son of God incarnate. And yet he also says things to, like, to the Pharisees, like, you're of your father the devil, <laughs> the father of all lies. Put it on a Hallmark card. <laughs> he is the word made flesh, and yet as he comes to the temple, he is flipping tables. There's fire in the presence of the Son of God. And yet there is joy. And Pascal's... Um, parchment sewn in his garment, he goes on, he says, fire, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars, heartfelt joy, peace, the God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, tears of joy, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. But Isaiah goes on, he says in verse 3, When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works for righteousness. 
those who remember you in your ways. So Isaiah's prayer in his waiting, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. His recognition that that is going to be costly. It's not this sort of shout into the void. He's not saying, man, it would be great if you showed up. Be awesome if you did something, but who knows? No, he he goes on. He grounds his prayer in the character of God. He says that no eye has seen, no ear has perceived any God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Maybe you find yourself here tonight and you've been in a season of waiting. You know, we've talked about how Advent is, is a season that teaches us to wait well as we kind of see what it's like to wait on God to move in the way that Israel waited. But maybe you've been waiting. Advent is nothing but a continuation of what your year or years has looked like. Waiting on a friendship to be healed, waiting on a dry season spiritually to be brought back to life. And I cannot tell you why it is that you're here why it is that you find yourself in that season of waiting. And I can't tell you why you're here or how long you'll be here. I don't know. But I can tell you what Isaiah knew and what he claims in his prayer, that God acts for those who wait on him. So maybe you've been in your own advent waiting for God to move, to restore, to to bring life. I just want to encourage you that Israel's waiting ended in the incarnation of the Son of God. God acted for those who wait. Advent always ends in Christmas. Maybe for you things are good, and and I'm talking about this waiting, and, and you're not waiting on anything. Life is great. Uh, There's no crisis nagging at you. There's nothing that you're anxious about. But I would just say this, that if you are a Christian in this room, whether you recognize it or not, you are currently living in a season of waiting. Because we, to this day, wait the return of the king. We have spent 2,000 years in Advent waiting on the return of Christ. As surely as Israel's waiting ended in heaven being torn and the word being made flesh, so too the church's waiting ends with the heavens torn open afresh and the Son of God descending in power. And so, we find ourselves here. At this moment in human history, I hope praying with Isaiah, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. But until then, We will be a people who wait.